0: welcome to The Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. I just put up a new blog post last night um, on James White and the Doctrine of God, Um, so check that out. Also, if you're watching us on our YouTube channel and you have not yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and hit the bell to receive notification on new videos. Um, But we have a special guest with us today, um, Pastor Josh Selmer of Victory Baptist Church um, out in Missouri. Um, He is a graduate from Spurgeon College at Midwestern, and he hosts the Baptist Broadcast Podcast. Thanks, Josh, for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Sure.
0: Um, So if you can give us maybe a little background on yourself before we dive into discussion on your book.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was, um, where do I start? There's, there's so much, right? Um, so my, my wife and I, uh, we, we started marital life out in, in California. And that's where we came to our, you know, our first Reformed Baptist church out there. And that's also where I began, you know, college uh, after the military. And um, long story short, I, uh, you know, had to jump ship over there and, and that's what brought me to, to Midwestern. The curriculum over there just wasn't strong enough in my estimation. And, uh, so, you know, transferred and, and that's what brought us to the Kansas city area. And we were here in 2016. That's when we moved here. And, um, I, uh, served at a Right off the bat, we served a, a church that was uh, an SBC church. Uh, it was, it was uh, pastored by one of the professors at the seminary that, that I'd, I'd grown, grown somewhat close to. And, and uh, again, long story short, eventually ended up at Reformed Baptist Church of Kansas City in Lenexa. And from there, uh, about two and a half years ago, it's almost three years now in April, uh, I was called to to where I am now at at Victory um and uh and that's that's Kansas City uh proper um and so I've been there for almost 3 years and uh I I've I've loved it I've been blessed there I've been blessed to serve there and I've been I've been very much served there by the by the people in that congregation so it's been a it's been a blessing and then on the side uh you know when I'm not you know, uh, hanging out with family or, or attending to the affairs of the church. Uh, I've done, I've done various things, uh, on the side. I was involved in the reform collective. Uh, some of your listeners might know what that was. It was a blog kind of consortium kind of deal with multiple writers and we did a podcast and anyway, everybody kind of went their separate ways. And and I've been blogging ever since then, just kind of on my own. And, um, and that's kind of evolved into what is now the Baptist broadcast. And, uh, and that's just kind of a place, you know, podcasting for me and, and blogging for me is a, is a brainstorming exercise. <laughs> and so it just kind of serves, it, it's subservient to, to my ministry. Um, and, and it serves my ministry in that way. It, it keeps my, my mind working, um even outside of you know direct preparation for the Lord's day and so it's it's helpful in that way and and i've just kind of always maintained that and 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 that's that's how it came to be and that's how it that's how it currently subsists so it's uh it's um it's a blessing to be able to do it and uh and i'm i'm extremely blessed to be able to interact with with some of these other men uh, on important issues like the doctrine of God and, and extremely humbled uh, to, uh, to actually have their attention in some ways and the attention of their audience, uh, at least a fraction of it. And, and to be able to contribute to the conversation, hope hopefully move the conversation forward in a way that, you know, conforms to uh, Christian orthodoxy and, And um, and historical, historical uh, and historical understanding of of the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's kind of it in a nutshell. Okay.
0: Now, I guess going back to the doctrine of God discussion, I know you've on your podcast, you focus on that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, What was it that really um, got you uh, pursuing that more academically or focusing on that uh, in your
1: side ministry? I was drawn to the doctrine of God conversation when we still lived in California prior to 2016. And the the reason for that was because we belonged to a reformed Baptist church and we weren't associated. Our church was not associated with, with Arbca or associated Mm -hmm. in Arbca, Mm -hmm. but we were there and and rubbing elbows with some of the members of, of Arbca, some of the participating churches and, And I became privy to the impassibility uh, debate at that point. I, I didn't really know what it was. I knew that I supported the confessional position, and it seemed right and good, even from an exegetical standpoint, to say that God is without passions, but I really didn't know you know the the all the facets of the debate or the discussion I, I still confess that you know i don't it's it's broad and vast and and you know we it's god we're talking about here and um and i just remember my pastor telling me at the time you know you should familiarize yourself with that discussion before you you know you're tempted to to write about it or 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 speak out about it cuz i was carrying a blog back then too and so i picked up a copy of Confessing the Impassible God, mm-hmm. um, published by RBAP, um, former Baptist Academic Publish or Yeah Press, and um, and started thumbing through that and uh, reading a few of the essays out of there, um, and that was kind of my resource up until Dolzell dropped his book All That Is in God. Read through that, I devoured it because it's so short, and and anyone listening to this. If you're in the discussion, but you haven't read that, go get that book and read it. And if you didn't understand it, read it again. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> that was formative for me in, in coming to it, and coming to in being able to grasp the categories and the importance, the significance of something like divine simplicity and classical theism in general. Um, and so from that point on, um, you know, I wasn't just reading. Confessing the Impassable God or Dalzal, but started diving into the, you know, more primary s- source material with mm-hmm. regard to like a, a, a post-reformed understanding of the doctrine of God. So once I was able to get my hands on on Mueller's PRRD uh, and then they started translating this Van Maastricht stuff, so I got my hands on it and of course always had Turretin on my shelf even from the California days. And so I just started devouring that stuff. And, and, uh, so a lot of my current understanding and grasp of the discussion comes from the older material and Dolzal was a helpful contemporary resource to kind of put it together and help mm-hmm. me understand when I read Turretin or, or, or Maastricht, like what, what those guys were talking about. So, um, and that's, and it's just kind of, kind of that It's it's been that development and you know wading into the discussion up until the present that's that's kind of characterized my involvement in it
0: okay well um you know we appreciate your ministry in that way and recalling these critical issues that we need to always keep in front of us so you know to our listeners check out um josh's podcast the baptist broadcast find you on youtube Um, they're on, he's on Spotify and other platforms, but check that out. Some really good stuff there. Um, well, thanks Josh for providing uh, some background on your ministry, but we're here to talk about, uh, Josh's new book, Marvel misery, (laughs) Marvel misery and mercy. Um, this is volume one of the series. I think it's a three part series that you're doing, Josh. Yeah. Um, but just wanted to talk about that a little bit. So Sean, take it away with, uh, starting off with our questions.
2: Yeah, so as uh, Dan alluded to, this is a uh, commentary on an Orthodox catechism, which is our, uh, our uh, listeners uh, know we've been going through. Um, so it should be a good discussion for our audience. But uh, why? Uh, what inspired you to write this book there, Josh?
1: So I wanted to—this actually, you know, this was conceived within the context of the local church. Um, I, I wanted to do a preaching series— for my congregation through the Catechism, and what I was what I was doing uh, was I was taking Keech's Catechism, and I was doing like as part of the order of service, I was doing like a, a reading of the question and answer, and then a, a just a brief two or three minute exposition on the answer, <clears throat> and that became a little too cumbersome. Uh, you know, to do along with the c- the singing and the and and the scripture reading and and I didn't want to overload the congregation with you know coming from a catechism question and a short exposition now straight into the sermon and it's almost like shifting gears, right? So, um, <clears throat> I was trying to think of a way to kind of improve that situation, knowing that I still wanted to do catechism. So I I we we have three services. One's a Sunday school, but we we have three, three services on Sunday. Um, uh, So we have Sunday school, we have first service and afternoon service. And so I have a lot of liberty there in terms of our schedule to, to, you know, take that afternoon service and, and, and go through catechism. Then the question was, do I want to go through Keach's catechism? Or do I want to go through, you know, some other catechism? Uh, there have been several written. There have been modern catechisms written. There have been, you know, older catechisms from the, the 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 Westminster, longer and shorter, and of course those are Pado Baptist documents. But you have Heidelberg, and and then then you have the Baptist take of the Heidelberg, essentially is 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 what you have here. And the thing I like about an Orthodox catechism is its its method is different from Keach's, in that Keach's is more of a systematic order. Right. So you're you're beginning with more first principles, um, whereas uh, which is great. And and I could just as well do a series through through it. um, But I like the way in which an Orthodox catechism uh, personalizes the question in terms of it it brings it home. It brings it home. So uh, the the, rubber is meeting the road within the context of the question and the answer in a really in a really obvious way um, you know, what do I believe, uh, you know, is, is an example of like how these questions are framed. It's bringing it to the personal level. And it's, it's, it's very practical. Um, the whole catechism is, is, is laid out in the three basic parts. You have man's misery, man's redemption, and man's thankfulness. And so it, it maps really well into the local church worship context. And, and my thinking was this will help, to build up my church and um and it'll be particularly edifying in that in that way if God so wills it to be and and I think it has been so far. So anyway, that's that's how it started and I do full manuscripts for for sermons. So these are already there after I'm done preaching them and I kind of like to get mileage out of stuff. So I was like, well, you know I have these manuscripts sitting here. I can just start turning them into I can just start publishing them. And um, so the drawback to that, obviously, and and doing the whole self published thing is, is I'm, I'm the editor, right? So like I'm my own editor, which ideally you'd have somebody else or multiple individuals set mm-hmm. eyes on this and, and, um, and that's not the case with me. So some of this is rough. It's a little rougher than I would like it to be. There've been some, you know, publishing errors and things like that, that I had to iron out and and all that. But, but other than that, my thought was, if I could, if I could publish those manuscripts, this will be a a helpful resource, I think for, for pastors and laity alike. Um, Even if people want to use it for, you know, home worship, family worship, uh, I think that you could use it within that, within that context to, to some extent. So that, that was the motivation really in taking those sermon manuscripts and, and turning it into, into what you see here.
2: Yeah, I I can't say that I've finished the uh, the book yet, but I will say I could definitely see this being used in a family worship context. It's very um, it would be very useful there. What made you pick the title Marvel Misery and Mercy,
1: and not a different order? <laughs> 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 so some, some people, you know, some people have asked like maybe you should have, maybe you should have, <laughs> you know, ordered it according to the order of the Catechism instead of uh, of Marvel Misery and Mercy. Um, I just I. So, in 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 going through the first section of of the catechism, uh, you have all three of these elements present already. So the catechism itself is 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 following a, a general threefold outline, but it's not like strict, right? So obviously, even in man's misery, you have you have shadows of what's going to happen. Like we're being prepared for a redeemer, like the need for a redeemer to be introduced and there you yeah, have boom second you know to part 2 and and misery is obviously the focus but you also have of god writ large in the first part of the catechism god's not neglected at all and that's that's my thinking with with the term with the term marvel uh this is god it's glorious this is god's plan and so those three terms are are more thematic of the catechism uh than they are trying to map the the layout of the catechism and then in terms of order of the of the words themselves i just it was just kind of more phonetic it was rolled off the tongue a little bit better than maybe another order so um so yeah that's that's kind of my thinking behind behind that
0: it seems to yeah if you look at it right off the bat it's kind of like um don't you think that mercy should yeah it, it just seems yeah. to flow kind of weird.
1: <laughs> right right
0: now that makes sense with the the way the the catechism flows because Uh, One thing we've known, or at least I've noticed when we've gone through our series on the catechism is that it doesn't follow like a traditional flow of Mm -hmm. what you would think. Like it doesn't necessarily start with man. It will it will jump from different topics necessarily sometimes.
1: Yeah. So,
0: yeah, it it doesn't flow like we would naturally think it flows. It's not flowing kind of like you said, like with Keech, like a systematic theology kind of flow. It's more topical.
1: Yeah, you could take Keech's catechism and you could use it as an outline for a systematic theology. Yeah. You know, yep. and, and you can't do that at all with the Heidelberg or or the or an Orthodox catechism. Mm-hmm. So. and I think that's by design. It's 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 what the catechism's intended for. And you can have different forms of, of catechesis and different, you know, purposes behind a particular catechism. And this one is just is really interested in experimental theology. um, Mm. Whereas that's not necessarily the case with, with something like Keech's, Keech's catechism is more like, and you know, a, a kind of survey of the entirety of the Christian faith in systematic form. Whereas this is, is like experimental theology through and through very doctrinal, but of course it's, it's, it's aimed at practice.
0: So. Yeah, no, that's a good point, because, um, for instance, you won't find a, you know, going back to the doctrine of God, you won't find a section necessarily on on God's nature, per se, but it's more about salvation right. in man's experience with how God works with his creation.
1: Right, right. That's exactly right.
0: All right. Um, now, talk about the format of the book a little bit. Um, you've kind of taken a, I guess, what I would think would be kind of a, a scholastic approach in terms of how it's laid out. Um, like you have an overview, like an opening to the question, Mm -hmm. a exegesis or an explanation of the doctrine, and then an application. Yeah. Um, what was your thinking behind using that particular
1: format? That's my preaching method, um, Mm. in general. And so the manuscript is already laid out that way. And, um, so like in our first service, we're going through Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And the my preaching method is, you know, uh, exegesis or the ex- exegetical part, then you have the doctrinal part, then the elenctic part, then the practical part is the fourfold kind of mode that that I've taken. And I've been doing that for the last, I don't know, two years, I would say consistently. Um, and a lot of that is influenced by um, Peter Van Maastricht, but but if you if you get the first volume, which I have here on my desk, I have both, you know, first two volumes of this. But if you get the first volume, this prolegomena, he goes through his his preaching method, and so it's it's really influenced by that. And the reason I took to that method that he presents in that volume is because it, it it's kind of the way we think. It's a very natural. That scholastic theology is great in that regard. A scholastic method is great in that in that sense because it just kind of follows the order of a person's thinking. So like if you read Mm -hmm. Thomas, you know, in the Summa Theologiae, for example, and you know, everybody's like, wow, he, he thinks like a computer and all this. And it's like, well, but the process that he's going through is actually a process that you go through within a, a matter of implicitly within a matter of seconds, your, your mind just does it and it, and it does it discursively and it does it without even thinking about it because it's, it's part of who you are. It's your nature to, to think that way. And this preaching method's somewhat like that in the sense that, well, it's, it's pretty obvious that your, your object is the text. So open the text, right? <laughs> and then what's the conclusion from the text? There's your doctrinal part. And then, OK, well, let's look at some objections and then answer those objections um, and then, you know, make application uh, that the practical use. And um, so that's how I write. I, I write the manuscript anyway. It, it's it's just my my personal method.
0: OK. Yeah, it, it flows really nicely because like having an opening to the question like that kind of sets the stage and gets the juices flowing in terms of what it is that's being asked by uh, Collins. Right, um, and right. Flushing that out very nicely in an exegetical format, and then how does this apply to me? Right. Um, so yeah, it seems to have a very natural flow to it.
1: And it's a little bit different with the catechism too, because <laughs> with the text, it's kind of, it's a lot easier with the text in the sense that in scripture, there's a lot to, to unpack Right. Even in yeah. a verse, and 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 in the catechism, there's a, there's sometimes a, a really narrow focus in a, in a single question. Mm-hmm. So that makes it a little bit different, like in terms of opening the question and how far are you going to go in that explanation, and you don't want to you don't want to you know step on other parts of the of the sermon or step on other parts of the catechism that you're going to encounter later, which is which is easy to do in an Orthodox catechism. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You you do have to be myopic in a sense. Like when you get to his chapter on uh, when he talks about infant baptism, he mm-hmm. has two or three pages on the Abrahamic <laughs> covenant. Right. It's like, wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. I got to get I gotta it, take, yeah. I got to take a snippet here or I'm going to be um, talking or writing for a very long time. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the theology um, that you discuss in the book. Um, in chapter five, you break down um, total depravity which Collins does go into in terms of man's condition and laying out a biblical anthropology. Um, but you discuss this in terms of the intellect and the will of man. Mm-hmm. Um, and Why is the relationship between these two things important when talking about total
1: depravity? The reason I went into that, and I was debating on whether or not to, because again, this is hitting my congregation first. Mm-hmm. And so I was debating on whether or not to even bring that up. And the reason I went ahead and did it is because, uh, there's a, there's very little discussion on, on, on man, on, on anthropology, uh, in general. And when you start mm-hmm. talking about, I get this question all the time. For example, guys, like, like I just had a conversation today with someone who is asking me, how does the resident, how does the resurrection work? You know, when Jesus comes back and he raises the dead, how does that work if we're already with God in heaven? Right. So and so the, and uh, and the and the, the answer to the question is, well, the human being is, you know, is if you're dichotomous is twofold, right? The human being is is twofold in, in substance, is body and soul, body and soul composite. And so there's there's not very much teaching on that. That's more basic. But even much less is their teaching on what the soul is, what the mind is, you know, how we know, how we think, and, and what part of man is actually doing that. And I brought up the intellect and the will specifically because you even hear Christians talk about this, where, you know, the, the assumption is that, you know, our thinking, our, our, our rational process, if you will, is the result of chemicals in our head. And mm. so the, the underlying assumption is that we're just, that's a, that's a, that's a materialistic view of, of man. And mm. so, uh, you know, when they're talking about, even when Christians talk about psychology, they talk about the chemicals in the brain and things like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's not all there is. And if we understood the brain more as an instrument of the soul or an instrument through which the soul does its intellectual work, we might say, then I think we would have a better understanding of, of what man is. So all of that to say is, is it was a pastoral concern because I've heard people talk about man, like he's a materialist, you know, automaton popping and fizzing, you know, almost the evolutionary view of what we are mm. um, being assumed by, by true Christians. Um, it's just part of the milieu of the day. And to, to kind of hit on the, the reality that no, we're we're a body soul composite, and the intellect is more than just your brain. Um, you know, this is this is a a, a faculty of the soul, and your 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 body is an instrument, uh, a tool through which the soul experiences the the outside world. So, and and then in terms of of making the the distinction intellect and will, and within the context of of total depravity, um, it's important to 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 note what what's actually depraved in man. What's the problem? And not only what's the problem, but what does God do to man that quickens him? When we say man's quickened, what do we mean? And you know, oftentimes you hear the criticism of Calvinism is, you know, well God drags you know drags you in kicking and screaming and all of this, and it's like I. I chose to believe, you know, you hear, you hear these Calvinists that are always like, I didn't, I'm not here by choice. They, you know, it's the old, the old Spurgeon quote, you know, I'm not a Calvinist by choice or something like that. And it's like, well, actually you are because God has changed your will. He's given you a new will and he's given you a and ascending will. And a, a will that is, is fitting for his purpose and, 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 and is inclined toward his will. So, uh, so yeah, they're you know, you're still a human being like, you know, don't conflate the the first and the second causes there. And you know, these are the faculties that God works on in order to to bring man into alignment with himself. Um, so it's just a, it's just an area that's not talked about about very often. I thought it would be good to to bring that up, even within the context of the church, and then and then keep it for the for the book as well.
0: Yeah, that's um, and I think that helps us to remember that. Uh, total depravity does mean all of our faculties are yeah. touched by sin, um, right. and our confession of faith is very clear about that. There is no part of us that is not left right. untouched by the effects of sin. So, yeah, if we if we do disconnect the mind, then we are in effect, maybe not intentionally, but in effect, saying that there is something that really maybe wasn't affected by sin or as right. much, um, and that can have implications.
1: Yeah, and then, um, and then to right. make the distinction between the intellect and the will, I think is helpful because you have, when you start talking about the will, you, you automatically drift into the ethical component. Right. And so when, you know, I think what a lot of of, of Calvinists assume is that there's some kind of like mechanical <clears throat> thing that's oppressing us to the point where we can't believe in God. And it's like, no there's not something mechanical keeping you from believing except for your own adversity to the things of God. And it's an ethical rebellion that you're in. This is not like, uh, you know, I get into this conversation with, with presuppositionalists sometimes. And it's like, you know, the, the, the the point of total depravity is not, is not to show that, you know, um, man is some victim and, and, and that he, you know, he can't, mechanically choose to believe in God he's actually held responsible for not believing and for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness so the the issue is that man is actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness it's like an active rebellion that he's in it's not some innocent state where you know he he just can't believe and and then he can he can just sit there and say well if i wait long enough maybe god will you know, make me believe one day I've run into that confusion, too, mm. where, where people are delaying repentance because they, they think that God is is going to give them some kind of feeling that's going to confirm that they that they believe now. And so they just sit there. It's kind of like Calvinism, You uh-huh. know, it's like mm-hmm. they, so they just sit there and wait for the for the impulse. And it's like, well, no, that's that's not at all. That's presumptuous. And, and you're commanded to repent and believe. You know, so um, anyway, that's kind of a rabbit trail. But uh, all of that relates the the intellect, the will, uh, the 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 total darkening of man. It's but it's not a darkening that's like happened to us so much as it is a darkening that we love and revel in and continue in. So. So.
2: So uh going into some other things that might get uh us calvinists in trouble you affirm uh the uh uh the phrase double predestination mm-hmm. in here would you like to uh give an expla- explanation about why that's so controversial and why it's perfectly appropriate to use that term
1: Yeah for sure um double predestination is controversial because it implies that god first of all let's let's just say that that the concept of 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 the election of of god's people like the choosing of certain people is controversial already not even don't even bring the reprobation piece into it but (laughs) but then we go a step further right we say well no that even the reprobation is 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 under the purview of god's sovereignty and and of course, there's there's there are different understandings as to how that all relates together. But but the core the core you know gist of it is that God has elected some to uh, to to eternal glory in Christ Jesus, and there are others that God has uh, ordained uh, that they should suffer His eternal wrath and remain in their sin. That they should not be redeemed. That they should not receive the grace. That he gives to the elect and and instead uh, they should they should remain in their sin and be judged for it. Um, and so that's extremely controversial because what what it sounds like you're saying when you when you explain that to somebody is, well, there are two groups of people and some are going to heaven and some are going to hell and it's already marked out. So let's just let it go, you know, and 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 let it all pan out. And it seems like that's what the implication is. You know, so why preach the gospel? You've got a set number of people going to hell already, and a set number of people going to heaven already. You know, and 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 God's going to make it happen regardless of what we do. You know, so we kind of, what happens is, you know, the 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 uh, instrumental cause is taken out of the equation, and it's assumed that you know there is no instrumentality, it's just and, the fatalism, and that yeah, that God just makes these things happen in a kind of uh, mechanical way, uh, and and then um, so yeah, I mean it's it's controversial for that reason among other reasons as well. Um, and, uh, and, and then you know moving on to the to the kind of uh, there are two main understandings of double predestination. Uh, one is called positive positive, where God positively elec- election is something that God does. that's a it's a positive uh, act, if you will um of bringing you know his elect people uh, uh to glory and that he positively ordains reparation uh, reparations gosh I think <laughs> critical, critical race theory, theory you know. uh yeah uh, that he that he positively ordains the reprobate to 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 not only go to hell but to remain in their sin so that's the positive positive position and there's a positive negative position which says that well yeah god still positively obviously elects his chosen and then and then uh and then negatively he he passes over those in their sin uh and just and just allows them to remain in in their sin unto damnation which is 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 where i'm at for a number of reasons um but uh and and we can get into that if you want to um but uh, the uh, uh, that's a big that's also a big debate but it's an in-house debate because these are all Calvinists you know talking about double predestination it's just how the question is how should we understand um, the work of the work of God and in, in in the context of that conversation so
0: so I think with um, yeah I think that is really where the discussion is it's, is it a passive action on the reprobate or is it active Um I would say, at least to some extent for both, it's still active if you hold that uh, God's decree is all-encompassing, yeah, um, yeah, so in that sense. But I guess having it worked out in time is might be different um depending. well, that's
1: on what you got it. You have to say that in the in the sense that, you know, God decreed that the reprobate should be reprobate, right? right. Like, but the question is the manner in which that decree actually yeah. administrates. You're, right. you're exactly right about that. So, like, how does that actually play out? Is it the case that? You know, God is, sus, you know, sustaining sin in them. Like, is he? You know, is that what he's? Is that how the dynamics play out, or, or does he have to sustain sin? Because if 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 the nature of sin is is privative, then it you don't sustain it. Something that's a privation of 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 something else is 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 non-sustained by definition. So it's what happens what it's what falls out whenever it's not whenever the goodness or the grace or whatever is not sustained, you have the privation of it, and um, and and that's how I prefer to to understand evil, uh, just because it it keeps us from from putting evil ontologically in God, um, whereas if you understand evil as something positive uh some substance that you know is out there in the world you you end up in a in a substance dualism and it, you either you know you have two options either evil exists in god or it was coexistent with god um and some competing you know source of of energy that that contradicted god's nature you know and I don't think either of those two options when when you really think about it are are available to to the Christians. So and everybody agrees with that. So they're just people are just trying to figure out how 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 best to to apply that. This is one of the reasons why I think the doctrine of God is principle. I mean, systematic theology has been done for so long where prolegomen is not really concerned, and the doctrine of God and its implications for the rest of our theology really isn't considered as it ought to be considered. And as a result, I think these problems with sin, the definition of evil, we run into issues here, the problem of evil, um, because we're really not hashing out our doctrine of God first. Um, Hmm. So if we knew who God was, I think all these other things would, would, you know, you'd be able to plug those in 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 light of who God is. and, And it would, you know, I think they'd be resolvable in a more effective way than than how we currently do it, which is to. Cut the prolegomena out of our systematic theologies and then, you know, kind of downplay uh, the 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 doctrine of God, the theology proper and focus on God's works. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the modern habit.
0: And Sean, it, you know, kind of going Sean, I think I'm going to jump ahead on the question real quick since we're talking okay. about um, the nature of evil. Um, but I did. I do appreciate that you, Josh, that you did have a a good discussion in the book on evil and what it is not, Um, because I think that is uh, in these discussions, like, you know, with the William Lane Craig James White discussion um, and talking about God being the author of evil. I think having a a proper understanding of what evil is, is very helpful Mm -hmm. uh, in these discussions. Um, So I think it was very good that you talked about that. I did want to clarify something, though. Um, when you did say in your book um, that God does not make evil happen, but that God withdraws His common grace in a particular instance where evil is committed, um, so to clarify, would you affirm that God would be the the mover of all actions, um, and He's just simply not moving someone to commit a certain act when uh, a certain evil is committed, just by the very fact that we are not us say as human beings or as created beings. And that, uh, in order for us to exist and move, that God must uh, be behind that.
1: Yeah, it's a tricky question because you're you're moving from the metaphysic now down to the physic, right? Yeah. So, and and that's that's hard because you get, you have to keep those two things distinct. They're not separate, but those two categories are distinct. So when you're thinking about a particular act of sin, you know, which is, you know, when we talk about that, when we predicate an act of sin. We're. It's positive in our language, how we talk about it. Yeah. it has to be positive. Okay, yep. you say you go rob a bank. Well, that's a that's a positive act. That's in a, an active tense. You know, John robbed a bank. You know, that's a very much active and uh, and it's very much sinful. So then the question would be, uh, is that so? As far as the actual particulars of the action are concerned, yeah, it's positive but when you're talking about compare, compare that compare John robbing a bank to the way things ought to be.
0: Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think we would say that robbing. think about what, what consists in robbing a bank. You, you have lawlessness uh, just generally uh, the violation of several different kinds of laws. Uh, you have uh, degradation of the imago dei, the image of God, because you're, you're committing theft against them and you're harming other parties. Um, if a death happens, you've taken a life. So that's mm-hmm. privation right there. You've just destroyed the good that God is, has has created. So if you're thinking about everything that's involved, what you have in that situation, if you use a word to describe what's actually going on there, yeah, there's all sorts of like little mechanics and, and little movements that are going on and acts that are that are happening that are, are coming together to, to make the situation play out. But if you if you if you just summarize a situation, it would be chaos. Because look at all the violation of the order, the laws of nature, human law, uh, jurisprudence. Uh, so you have chaos as opposed to order. It's Even though there is a way we can speak positively about what happened, it's still a detraction from how things ought to be, right? So that's kind of stepping back and applying the meta level to the particular situation of John robbing the bank, you still have a privation of the good in the sense that this is a devolution from what ought to be the case. The bank ought to exist unrobbed, right? Instead, it's been robbed. Something's been taken from it. You have privation in the particulars even. But um, I think it's helpful to, to to think about it in the terms of... of of order and chaos and 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 by the way the 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 doctrine this doctrine of of evil is really derived from creation uh the creation account in genesis and when god creates um everything's it, it's formless right and and void there's stuff right uh the the philosophers used to call it you know prime matter there was no form matter had not yet met form and uh so there's stuff there we can't even conceive of what the stuff was like because there was no form to it the second you uh you picture you know an ocean of you know some blob or something you've you've just pictured a form right so like it's it's really hard for us to think in terms of material without form like it's almost impossible for us to actually conceive of what that would be like but when it's when materials there but it's formless i mean you you have nothing but chaos and then what God does is he comes in and he starts ordering it and he starts he starts meeting the matter with form and then you eventually have the creation the interesting thing is is that man as God's image is commanded to do the same thing God doesn't God doesn't finish out the world in in smooth and engineered terms uh, the the whole world by the time God's done creating it doesn't look like, uh, the Temple Mount in Israel right it, there's still raw materials uh, it talks about the rivers flowing out of Gen- uh, out of Eden and then you have the bdellium and the gold and and all of that's out there in the ground and and the, and 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 the implication is is man is to expand the garden man I mean if you read Beale on this man is supposed to expand the garden and, and bring creation into order that's one of the ways in which in which man, Takes dominion. It's one of the ways in which man images God. It's like why why do why do we have animal husbandry? You know, like this is a you have wild animals running around out there. Man comes in, takes them captive, and then domesticates them, or uses them for 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 farming or whatever agriculture. And that's because man's a little ordering of the chaos. And uh, if, if we understand, if we plug evil into that metaphysical picture, then. You know, evil is is a privation of of the of the order of the order. So it's 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 chaos. It's what ensues when there's no order. Um, and, and I think even like when you talk about total depravity, it's in the word depraved. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's 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 what's not there. And then this is why we say grace is so important. We need God's grace like and that grace comes through Christ and Christ alone. But it's 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 grace that we don't have, which we need in order to be restored into a right relationship with God. And so, when it gets into the weeds of particular actions, it's a little complicated because you can talk about it positively because it's 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 active things going on. But but really, uh, it's 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 disorder. Uh, you know, you think about it even in terms of the LGBT stuff and. And what is homosexuality but a, a privation of of the good of marriage? It's a it's a perversion of it, and that's what a perversion is. It's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's like a Picasso versus a Rembrandt. You know, it's the Picasso perverts the order and the goodness of the actual form. You know, that's the whole project of postmodernism is to is to bring chaos and destroy order. So.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's that's helpful, um, and and you see this even in looking in the Reformed. I mean, the the Westminster, I think it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, sin is any lack of conformity, right? Into a transgression right. of the law of God, it was seen as a lack, and mm-hmm. I think Scripture brings it out very well. First John three four, sin is lawlessness. It's the lack of right. good. It's the lack of law. It's nothing positive with right. regards
1: to it. And you know, Turretin Turretin says, yeah, I mean evil is principally, it's a privation. And then he says, you know, but there is a way we can talk about it positively. So there's like a right. positive angle, especially in terms of our language and our, but it, it's hard to, it's impossible to talk about something like non-being. Um, You know, because every time you talk about non-being, which is what evil does, it it, it causes being to tend toward non-being you have to predicate as a human being as a creature you have to predicate every time you predicate you're you're saying something rather than nothing mm-hmm. and so our language breaks down you know on that level that's but
0: all right, all China, right. Take us to the next one
2: yeah going back to that uh question um on page 88 you discuss uh what it means that man is made in the image of god and you say that it means that we have some sort of likeness to uh, mm-hmm. to God. Um, how do we maintain the creature uh, creator distinction while at the same time saying God is or uh, man is like God in some way?
1: Right. Um, so I can't remember if I actually like go into this in the book. It would be hard for me to imagine that I do. I may mention it, but um, there are there are three main ways that we can. Talk. There are three main ways that we can uh, use language, I guess, and <clears throat> one of those ways is pretty familiar. It's it's univocal. Uh, uh, to 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 speak univocally of something is to speak uh, not really so much in terms of likeness as it is to speak in terms of comprehension. So when I say this this, this book, you know, has four corners, you know, that speech, that predication concerning this book, it it maps to the book in a, in a really correlative way. And it, it comprehends it. There's a, there's a sense in which those terms concerning that book gets, gets their linguistic arms around the object. Um, and then we can speak. That's the most common way of speaking is is univocally. And then we can speak equivocally, uh, and that's where like you use the same word to refer to different things. So like I always use the example of the word trunk. You could mean an elephant trunk. You could mean a car trunk. You could mean a trunk for clothes. You know, and and there are all sorts of of different ways of using that one word. And that's where you know things get tricky because especially in English because we have several different ways in which a single word might, might apply. Right. So, um, that's, that's, uh, equivocal language. And then there's analogical language and analogical language is the language of similitude. So, um, if I could give an example, uh, I I, want to give a good example. Let's just, let's just take our actual topic at hand. Um, when we say that 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 God is loving, right, uh, we have to understand our th- we have to understand that statement in light of of our theology proper, which is one of the one of the most key things that we say in our theology proper is God is infinite, right? God's infinite, which means God cannot be comprehended by the finite. Uh, the, the phraseology of the uh, of the Reformation, finitum non capax infinity, uh, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite, and so uh, and, and because if the finite comprehends the infinite, then the infinite's not infinite, right? And so, um, if that's the case, then our finite terminology, our finite language, cannot comprehend God um, at all. And it, it, it's, not, it's not even as if our language gets a piece of God, because that would assume that God could be quantified, right? So we speak in, when we're talking about God, we speak in analogical terms, and that's language of similitude. And it doesn't boast a comprehensive understanding of, of what that is in essence. So for example, when I say there is love in God, what I'm saying is, is there is something like what I know to be love in God, but it's infinite. So my finite understanding, my finite terminology, it can't map to to God. It cannot map to an infinite essence uh, in a univocal way. And it's also not equivocal, um, because it, it still means something; it's still communicating something that's true about God, but it's communicating truth by way of similitude and not identity. So it's not it's not language of identification, so much as it's language of analogy or, or language of similitude or likeness. And so when we're talking about the image of God, the imago Dei, we're talking about uh, not a, a and a, and. A, it's not to be understood in, in terms of, uh, of, of, you know, twinsies, right? Like we're not, we're not twins of God. Uh, we're not just like uh, replications of the divine essence because we're finite. So the question is, is like, well, in what ways are we like God? Uh, we're most like God in, uh, our knowledge, our wisdom, uh, that God has given us original righteousness, which that's obviously that's gone, and and everything else, knowledge, wisdom, that's all impugned by sin as well. So we've lost our likeness, the creaturely way in which we imitate God, uh, and that's analogical; it's not univocal. Uh, has 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 been um, uh, has been impugned by our sin and our detraction from from his holiness, his righteousness, and, and so on and so forth. And so this is why Jesus comes, the Son, who even in his incarnate state is the image. He is the express image of the divine essence. Um, and, and he's re- revealing to us, Jesus, according to his human nature, is revealing to us in a creaturely way uh, as it touches his manhood, what God is like what it, what it, what it means to be image of God is found entirely in Jesus Christ and that's where our image is is restored is is in him and in him alone and he's already he's already done it he's been the perfect image bearer in our place and and we're united to him and and that's a present reality now but it'll be consummated eventually upon his return and 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 we'll look entirely like him we'll be conformed to his image so I think
0: from, at least in my personal study, uh, working through the doctrine of God, I think trying to find that, that fine line in terms of analogy versus univocalism mm-hmm. is, is the hardest part of formulating those doctrines. Because right. if we start to say similitude, it almost sounds like we're saying there is some substantial um, sameness at some level there. Um, but at the same time, we're not saying that because we do recognize there is a real distinction
1: right? and there has
0: to be a real distinction between uh, the creature and the creator, or or we have pantheism.
1: Well, and this is a problem, a contemporary problem that touches the current discussion is this idea of a univocal core. Um, and so this, this, this idea that, yeah, our, our language is kind of the, the, let's say take a take a, a you know predicate something about god god is love the outskirts of that statement are 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 analogical but there there's some core of sameness there there has to be a point of contact that is the same for us there's some sameness in there somewhere and it's trying to maintain that personalist understanding of uh, of of god and and the assumption, the presupposition is, of course, and this is William Lane Craig's problem, and and I think it's a it's 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 uh, it's endemic uh, of of really the whole situation, and, and everybody's issue with divine simplicity and analogical language and so on and so forth is, the assumption is, is if you're speaking about something analogically, you can't know it for, for you can't know it truly, like analogical predication doesn't give you true knowledge, um, and we would respond and say, no, it does give you true knowledge. It just doesn't give you univocal knowledge. The assumption is, is that if it, if it's going to be true, it has to be univocal. And so we have to maintain that univocal core somewhere in our predication that allows for that sameness, that point of contact. This is exactly what was, what was in uh, Jeff Johnson's latest book, a failure of natural theology um, yeah. in the final chapter on analogy. It was talking about this, this, I don't think he used the the term univocal core, but he went along the same lines of well, right. oh, there has
0: to be a sameness. Yep. It has to boil down to some sameness somewhere. Right, right. There's a point of
1: contact. I think he used the the terminology point of contact in in our predication about God, which is actually extremely dangerous if you take that if you if you take that and run with it. Um, and it 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 introduces creatureliness into into the divine essence, which is why I appreciate that you asked this question, um, because it's important to understand that there is no creatureliness in God. Yeah. I mean, God's yeah. not creature and creatures are not God. And so then the question is, of course, well, what does it mean to be a Mago Day? And and how can we talk about God meaningfully at all? You know, So, and I think analogical language has a lot to offer uh, on that front, especially if, if we understand that that it does communicate true knowledge. Um, it's not just, you know, uh, metaphor or, or or something like that. Even though metaphor does as well communicate true knowledge, but I'll leave it. It at almost that. seems
0: like it's. um At least this is how I see it right now. It would the similarity is really in God's external works rather than speaking univocally back to God. Mm-hmm. So talking about us being made in His image, we are the work of God, reflecting. Who he is, right? Uh, just kind of in an indirect way, or in a, a reflective sense,
1: right? Yeah, um, I, I mean, his fingerprints are on everything that, right? You know, to, to, to use you know flowery language, his his fingerprints are on everything that he has created. Yeah, Um, so everything that he has created bears something of his character. What we want to be careful with is we don't want to read his effects back into his his essence, which right. Is, you Which know, is another and, uh, problem that happens. A so. lot of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a that's an issue. Um and and I talked to uh, that was kind of a, a centerpiece in in Dr. Barcellus and I's conversation uh that we did on uh, Trinitarian hermeneutics.
2: All right. So we're running up on almost an hour here to close out our discussion. Uh was there anything we could pray for you, Josh, or or for your church or anything at all?
1: yeah i would uh i would uh, very much appreciate prayer for tomorrow um and uh preparation for the lord's day and and for all of us that uh that the lord would edify his saints and and glorify himself in our in our in our midst so uh,
2: absolutely and then as far
1: as just the just the engagement as it as it progresses you know that what i'm concerned about is you know i just want to see I want to see people who are, you know, well-intentioned, <clears throat> who are coming to this discussion or this debate with the desire to know the truth, the desire for the truth. I, I, my hope is to see them, you know, to see those guys fall in the right direction and in line with with a classical understanding of who God is, and then. And then to see the fruit of all that is going to be a, the fruit of all that is going to be a, uh, a church, uh, you know, Christians who love God, know God, and then everything else that is you know consistent of God's works is going to be able to be related to God properly, and and not not in a way that's going to to take away from who He is. And in a way that's not going to uh, obscure or 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 damage the uh, the the work that Christians are rightly trying to do concerning God's works. So, like you know, trying to correct anthropology, trying to correct the doctrine of man. uh, You know, in the face of CRT, intersectionality, and 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 all of that, Um, I think all of that is tarnished when we've, we, we go after that, but then our doctrine of, we don't even know what our doctrine of God is. Who is God? And why does this even matter? If you don't have God, then none of it really, none of it really matters. So you, you have to, you have to get the main things down and then go after that stuff. You'd be stronger, you'd be stronger when you do it that way. So.
0: Amen. Yeah, well, we'll definitely pray for that, bro. That is that is absolutely a need today. I, I know in my personal journey of coming to a more full understanding of the doctrine of God, I think along the lines of your last podcast episode, you know, Grandma Believes in Divine Simplicity,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that, you know, the tr- every true believer does hold to this doctrine, um, whether explicitly or implicitly. I think for me, it was, you know, I think as a Christian, I always believed God was immutable, God was eternal. Right. But didn't really understand what all the implications of that were.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. And so until I think it was that book on impassibility from Arbab that kind of got the wheels turning on. Yeah. And really wanted to get into these things, but, um, getting those people who just don't really understand what's going on, but they have these, they really are holding to it implicitly. Right. Um. And 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 then correcting those who persist in in these, um, in right. false doctrine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, brother. Thank you for joining us today. We
0: really appreciate it. Um, And just for our listeners, we will be off for the next couple of weeks Um, over the holidays. We'll be taking a break, but we'll be back Lord willing on January 8th. Um, But with that, everyone have a great Lord's day tomorrow and a great weekend.
2: God bless.